All right, and for those of you who remain, I will look at Romans chapter 8. You can turn there in your Bible to Romans chapter 8 with me this morning. Thank you for your singing again, a real encouragement to my heart. Um, Love that last song and the mention of grace repeatedly. Uh, the grace that we needed in Christ for salvation after we had made a mess out of things, and then uh, reflecting upon uh, the grace of Christ and his soon return. I'm so thankful for being able to look at grace in Romans, right? If there's one chapter of Romans I just think of with grace, I think of Romans 8. Uh, just so, so very grateful for that grace. I, I want to thank you as well for those of you who occasionally pray for me uh, as I study the scripture throughout the week. I'm uh, just really sensing and feeling as a human being and a pastor that there are a lot of things that would uh, easily distract uh, me from spending the time I need to in the book of Romans and Romans chapter 8. We're in the middle of it. Sometimes it feels like Romans will never end, right? As a preacher, just uh, uh, the overwhelming uh, weight and responsibility of preaching through Romans is, is challenging week by week, but what a joy it is to be able to study and to know God's Word. So thank you for your prayers for me, uh, that I would understand this book, get to know it more and more, and then proclaim it. Romans 8 has been joyous, but it's kind of beat me up some this week, so... Uh, you'll learn a little bit more about that as we go through the sermon. In Romans chapter 8, we've been considering for the last two weeks an amazing pronouncement from God over us. The pronouncement could be summarized with two words in English, no condemnation. No condemnation. Can you believe that? As bad as we are? (laughs) No condemnation. Imagine being in a courtroom where the judge has complete omniscience. He not only knows all things, he also has perfect knowledge of all of your offenses, every single one, everything that you've ever done, everything that you've craved, everything that you've thought, everything that you've covered from others. Then, the charges are read one by one, in front of the entire court. And the charges go on and on and on for hours and hours. You know there is no way to wiggle out from underneath this judge. And there is no way he will be corrupted or compromised. But then, an advocate for you stands up and says, I have something to say. I have paid myself for every one of these offenses. The judge then looks over the case, and he says that he has no judgment, no sentence to pronounce, It's all been paid for. You are not condemned and you're free to go. No condemnation. That's the verdict. So we've considered no condemnation 
these past two weeks, and we've learned that we have no condemnation for two reasons, because we are in Christ Jesus. His righteousness is ours. Our sin is transferred to him. But, but then secondly, because we are in the Spirit. In verse 9, Paul says that we are in the Spirit. Uh, that is, the Spirit of God is inside of us. These two grounds for our justification, then, involve love and grace that's immeasurable. Even using that first illustration, it's thinking about no condemnation. It's, it's love and grace that's unmeasurable. But what we're going to find in this text is that, that it's not only uh, immeasurable in its love and in grace, it also requires obedience from us. I love Romans 8, 12 through 17, the passage we're going to look at today. I love it for its extremes. It takes us to the mountaintop of spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. We're going to really enjoy that. But it also takes us to the mountaintop of personal response. Jesus said it so well in the Gospels this morning, I couldn't help but think of what Jesus said in Luke twelve forty eight. He says, to whom much has been given, much is what? Much is required. So in our sermon today, we're going to revel in the blessings, the mountaintop of blessings, but we're also going to hover over the requirements. And what we'll see in this passage is some things will be exhilarating and other things will be very, very serious for us to consider. And so I want to start with a word of prayer. We've already asked God through the Spirit to make his word powerful today, but let's ask him for open eyes to understand this word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for uh, this passage. I pray that you would help me to proclaim it with seriousness, with joy, also determination in my own walk with you. Lord, help us. Help us to grasp the point of this text, but not just about believers, but about us. Help us to make it personal. Change us. Use your spirit, Lord, to uh, use his word, the sword of the spirit, to Uh, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we'll continue our study of Romans 8, looking at the implications of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans 8, 12 through 17, the whole text can be summarized in two uh, implications that Paul gives of having the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. So I've got a two-point outline for you today. Uh, No bulletin handout, no PowerPoint. Tried a PowerPoint right before church, and the thing froze. So I don't know what I did to it. Uh, They they thought I might need to perform an exorcism. I just decided uh, there must be uh, something on my slide that's an error or something. So no PowerPoint. No handout, but two-point sermon, very easy to follow. Number one, two implications. First, because we have God's Spirit inside of us, we now have no obligation to obey the flesh. Verses 12 and 13. Implication number one. Because the Holy Spirit of God is inside of you, if you're a believer in Jesus, You are under no obligation to obey the sinful flesh anymore. Verse 12, look with me there. So then, brothers, we are debtors, 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, to understand Paul's point in verses 12 and 13, you need to make two observations. At least I, these really help me. First, notice our new obligation. In this passage, Paul uses a word he loves to use in Romans. He uses it in key points. He uses it at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, he says that he himself was a debtor. That's the word I'm talking about here. Paul already says that he experiences debt or obligation. His obligation, Romans chapter 1, was to share the gospel both with the Greeks and the barbarians, with the wise and the unwise. He says in that text, as much as was within him, he was ready to share the gospel because God had opened his own eyes as a Christian, an apostle. Paul was under obligation to share the gospel in evangelism or with the Roman believers. But next, Paul uses the word again near the end of the book in Romans chapter 15 and verse 27. You can keep your finger here. You can look over there. It's not too far. In Romans 15, 27, Paul uses a word for debt again. When he describes the obligation that Gentile churches in Macedonia felt toward Jewish brothers in Jerusalem, he says this, Romans 15, 27. For they were pleased to do it, to give, back to the church of Jerusalem. And indeed they owe it to them. That's the same word for debt. They owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. The church of Jerusalem was going through a difficult time, so Paul encourages the Gentile churches. He says, you have a debt to pay to these Jewish brothers in Jerusalem. But back in Romans chapter 8, what is the obligation that Paul's talking about? Well, there he says that we believers are debtors, and this is what he says, we are debtors not to the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, we are no longer indebted to the flesh. We're no longer subject to the tyranny and mastery of our sinful flesh. That is, we do not need to cave in to the pressure that that, uh, to sin that the flesh places on us. He then continues to explain things, and he explains why we don't live according to the flesh. That's what verse 13 says is primarily about. If if we do that, the reason is, if we do that, if we live according to the flesh, we will die. This is strongly worded, which I think speaks to the eternal or everlasting death that people experience in hell. So we don't live according to the flesh. We don't want to live according to the flesh. Why? Because if we do that, we're going to die. But this death is also a reminder of those who consistently live in their sinful flesh. It's a reminder of what we were. But I think that Paul mentions dying here in verse 13 as a way to prepare the way 
for the next description he gives of this obligation. We must not only not live according to the flesh. Paul says you must put to death the deeds of the body. That's how he says it. Now, some English translations use the word mortify here. Older translations. And that's a harder word, but either one. What, what does Paul mean when he says that we are to mortify or put to death the deeds of the body? Well, we're going to explore that for just a little while. I'm going to get some help. I'm going to get a, a Puritan to come and say something here uh, through, uh, through my mouth to you uh, in his words. Let me just say, what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? Uh, This is very strong language. What we must do is something so radical and deliberate that only the word death could suffice to describe it. We can't enter into whatever we're talking about here half-heartedly or passively. I think that we'll see as we go through the text that um, our flesh, our sinful flesh, wants to use our bodies to sin... And these passions are so strong that overcoming them takes utter, utter determination. In other words, you need to put them to death. You need to kill them. These deeds of the body. You remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. You say, well, that's radical. How could you say that, preacher? I say, well, I'm not the source of that. That comes from the Son of God. You say, but aren't you going to give some kind of disclaimer to a statement so radical as that? I say, well, no. I'll let the Holy Spirit give a disclaimer if he wants to. Of course, cutting off limbs won't even stop us in our lusts and sins if we don't follow his methods. And his methods, I think, are expounded in Romans 8 here. My main point with bringing Jesus' words back to your mind and in stopping and hovering over, put to death the deeds of the body, is to show you this is not a game. It's not playtime. I'm not leading recess in here. Although I like recess. This is wartime. Andy Nacelli put it this way. He says, to put to death means to root out and destroy. To root out and destroy. Like pulling weeds, we are responsible to destroy the sins and the sinful desires that our flesh would put on us. You cannot just cut the tops off of the weeds. That's what I do in my yard. That's my method. But here we need to root these deeds of the body out. This is where we'll learn from the Puritan. Uh, William Garnell. 
William Garnell wrote a 1,200-page commentary, 1,200 pages, on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. 11 verses. You think I preach a long time? Should have lived during that era. 1,200 pages, 11 verses. He said this, A Christian must prosecute an irreconcilable war against his bosom sins. When he says bosom sins, it's those sins we hold most dear. Now I'm going to skip a little bit of his, his reading, and I'm going to read the next part. And this next part, he has as, as an appeal from God to us to put to death the deeds of the body. So God says, soul, take thy lust, thy only lust, which is the child of thy dearest love, thy Isaac, the sin which has caused you the most joy and laughter, from which thou hast promised thyself the greatest return of pleasure or profit. If ever you uh, hope to see my face with comfort, lay your hands upon it and offer it up. Pour its blood before me. Run the sacrificial knife of mortification right into the heart of it. And do this freely and joyfully. For it's not a pleasing sacrifice that is offered with a countenance cast down. He continues, he says, truly this is a hard saying. And flesh and blood cannot bear it. For our flesh will die, will not die so patiently on the altar as Isaac did. Or as a lamb that is brought to the, slum, the slaughter is done. He says, no, our lust will rear and shriek, yea, it will shake our heads with its hideous outcry. Well, that's our obligation. Put to death the desires and the deeds of the body that are against him. That's our part of the daily struggle against sin. Now, I want to be really clear and simple here. Whose sin are you supposed to kill? Your wife's? No. Your husband's? Nope. Children? Wrong. Bosses? Wrong. Your own sin. You must get serious and root out and destroy your own sins. That's our new obligation. But... There's a very important phrase here in verses 13 and 14. I've said nothing about to this point. And that is our new empowerment. In one little phrase, Paul captures how we do this. In the middle of verse 13, Paul says, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. See that? But if by the Spirit, that's how we do it. Here the word Spirit is instrumental. The instrument we use to do this is the Spirit, or that God uses is the Spirit. And uh, this word Spirit is brought forward in the original language. You can't see it in the translation here, but it's brought forward to the beginning of this passage for emphasis. Paul wants us to see that this kind of rooting out and destroying sinful deeds is Only possible by or through the Holy Spirit of God. See, because of our union with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is now determined to make us more like him. And that's the key 
for us brothers and sisters. Our obligation can only be fulfilled by the Spirit. If you try to kill sin any other way, you will fail. Or uh, that's not even stated strongly enough according to this section. You will die. This is not a moral self-improvement program. Romans 8. No, you must have God's Holy Spirit inside of you if you are going to be holy. And so, of course, the application for those of us who actually know Christ and have the Spirit inside of us in sanctification, then, is to run to Him. To pray to Him for strength and victory day by day. You say, well, don't you have something else, preacher? Don't you have some gimmick or trick to help me? Surely you have some, you know, surefire counseling technique to give me victory over sin. I, I want to push back against that and say, we are talking about the Holy Spirit of God. We're talking about the third member of the Holy Trinity who lives inside of you, if you know Christ. He is the means. He is the way for you to put to death the deeds of the body. So use the resources he's given you in the battle. What are his resources? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Use the word that he's given to you in your battle against sin. And potentially another means of the Spirit would be use the spiritual brothers and sisters around you. Speaking truth into your life, digging into your life, asking you the questions that you've given them permission to ask you. So this is our first implication of our new life in Jesus, of being indwelt by the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the body. This is how um, we are to live. Now, the question I ask before we move along is, how are you doing with this? Are you growing? Or are you content with your walk with the Lord? Are you currently, this past week, have you been putting to death the deeds of your body through the Spirit, through His Word, through His people? Are you serious about this? Is it urgent to you? Are you radical about it? Current events remind us of the seriousness of war. Our hearts, of course, are with Israel, who first enjoyed the adoption as sons. We're going to read about that in Romans 9. Today, we might get to something about adoption as well. Romans 9 says, to them belong the adoption, or belongs the adoption. But we pray for Israel that they will no longer reject Jesus. And we firmly believe, I firmly believe Romans 11 is true. All Israel one day will be saved as all national Israel will one day look to Jesus when they see him in the clouds returning to help them. And guess what they're going to do whenever they see him in the clouds? It's amazing. They're all going to believe. Every one of them. When they see him return to help them. But, may the horrors of the war that we're reminded about every day on the news remind us that we too are in a war. It's not recess. 
put to death. Kill the enemy. The enemy is the flesh. The deeds of our body. That's the first implication. The second implication is found in verses 14 through 17. And I'll pick up the pace a little bit here. The next implication, or Roman number two, a two-point sermon, number two, is because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. Ready? Ready for this? Profound. We are now sons of God. That's implication number two. We are sons of God. This amazing passage, Romans 8, 14 through 17, I think will be very encouraging to you. Let's look at the passage. I'll read it out, out for us, and then we'll, we'll work through it quickly. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him. I want to look through these verses with you and just point out five uh, attributes of our sonship, of being sons of God, five qualities of that. Uh, first, verses 14 and 15, uh, A, are about the, describe the reality of our sonship. In this passage, Paul speaks about the leading of the Spirit, and I know we all love to talk about how God leads. There was a class we just had on the will of God, and And uh, many in our congregation spent seven weeks talking about the possible ways God might lead us. We love to talk about God's leading. But in this passage, uh, the Spirit's leading has nothing to do with guidance and decision-making or leading us in our life direction. In this passage, the leading of the Spirit is specifically what we've already been talking about. The leading of the Spirit is... The Spirit's leading us away from doing what our sinful flesh wants. The leading of the Spirit is His leading or directing us to put to death the deeds of our body. Now, the new idea that's introduced here regarding leading and the Spirit's work is that the Spirit leads those who are the sons of God. That's the new theme. And this new theme is meant to assure us or to encourage us that we belong to and are special to God if we are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, his actual way of saying that is a bit complicated, and it revolves around two uh, expressions. He talks about a spirit of slavery and a spirit of adoption. And you kind of have to wrestle with those to understand the basic concept that Paul gives here. First, the spirit of slavery, he says, causes fear. I think this is Paul's way of describing what we used to be as unbelievers. I don't think when when Paul describes a spirit of fear that he has any particular spirit in mind that hovered over us or something that influenced us when we were unbelievers. He's just simply saying what the spirit is not. 
Before our conversion, we served sin and our flesh, and we did so in fear. Living in fear is the status that is often the experience of slaves. Slaves, even during this time in the first century, were sometimes motivated by harsh things like whips or hooks or the threat of a cross. So Paul says about the indwelling spirit, the indwelling spirit does not produce slavery, does not cause us to live in slavish fear of sin or of God. Instead, he describes him as the spirit of adoption. He says, we have received the spirit of of adoption as sons. I just want to point out two things here about this to help us understand what Paul's saying. First, I think you'd have to wrestle with what is, what or who is the spirit of adoption? Just simply stated, I think it's the Holy Spirit. What or who is the spirit of adoption? It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He is called the spirit of adoption here because he is the one who's brought to pass our adoption as sons and daughters of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit produces our adoption as God's sons when he unites us with Christ and we come to share in Christ's sonship. But secondly, there's a whole host of things I could say about adoption in the first century, but what I'm going to do for sake of time, I'm going to push those to next week because the text will continue to talk about adoption next week, okay? The one thing I would point out about adoption is used in Romans 8, though, is that it has two nuances. Okay. Paul can use adoption to describe our past when we were converted, we were adopted. I think that that's likely the point he's emphasizing here. But he'll also use it of a future time when we will experience glorification and receive all the privileges of our adoption. That's also adoption, Okay. Uh, having said that, let me just say this about our text. Paul understands here, the Spirit is the one who adopted us into the family of God. And it's through him that we enjoy all the rights and privileges of being a child of God. One other little thing about adoption. In, in the first century in Roman culture and people, Adopted sons shared all the privileges of sons by natural birth. And I think that's the point he's making here. That's the reality of our sonship. We've been adopted by the Spirit of God. That leads to number two, second attribute, the confidence of our sonship. The end of verse 15, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are so settled into our sonship through the indwelling Spirit of God, that we are able to call him Abba Father, an expression of warmth and closeness. Now this expression comes from two words. You can see that in your Bible. The first word is Aramaic and the second is Greek. Paul's point with these words, I think, comes from something Jesus did in the Gospels. Remember Jesus and all Hebraic Jews during this time spoke in Aramaic. So when Jesus would say the name Father, in reference to his Father, guess what word he would use? It's the first one in the list, Abba. 
Abba. It's an affectionate and warm title that could be translated Father or Daddy. Now the Gospel writer Mark tells us in his Gospel that when Jesus was at the depths of his greatest agonies in the garden, he cried out to God. Remember what he said? Jesus said, Abba, Father. As a matter of fact, that whole prayer, it's just concise, it's just one verse. Every word deserves our attention. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And he he asked, he said, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, every word deserves our attention. But, But for today, just think of the first words, Abba, Father. Jesus used this title with the creator God because of his own personal, close, familial relationship with his father. Calling God by the name Abba, Father, is the exact opposite of fear. You use this term only if you enjoy a warm, confident, close relationship with the creator God. But this was entirely appropriate for Jesus, and because of him, he pioneered the way, so it's appropriate for believers. Imagine the reaction from people if someone ran up to our president, Joe Biden, in a crowd and embraced him, hugging and clinging to him. How would people respond to that? I think the Secret Service would have something to do. Terminate. People would gossip and spread all sorts of different videos and accounts if this person wasn't his wife. Imagine that. If... However, it was his grandson or granddaughter. Our whole perspective would change. We would all agree that a granddaughter or a grandson has the right to go and hug the President of the United States. Although Jewish people, I think, wouldn't, who wouldn't even write out the name of God might struggle with such intimacy... Jesus opened up a new way for for his brothers to relate to God as Father. That's the confidence of our sonship. We can call him Abba, Father. Okay, number three, the verification of our sonship. That's what verse 16 is about. We can do this quickly. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How dare anyone call God Father, right? I mean, what what could warrant sinful human beings calling God Father? Well, it's because a dual witness verifies that we are God's Son. The Spirit of God himself joins with our own human spirit to bear witness to our sonship. As the old commentator John Murray said it, he said, we have a witness given to us that joins a witness by us. Witness given to us is the Holy Spirit. The witness by us is our own spirit. This is the verification of our sonship. We know we're the sons of God. We know this internally. 
our spirit bears testimony to it. And then the Holy Spirit also testifies that we're sons of God. It leads to the fruit of our sonship, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we are indeed children of God, that means that we stand to inherit immeasurable blessings. I mean, if this is really true, right? If this is true and we are sons of God, we're going to get some immeasurable blessings and inheritance because of that. That's what what this passage is about. That's what verse 17 is about. And if children were heirs. I think we couldn't state it any better than the meditation of Simon Peter as he opened up his first epistle. He said, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, listen, and to an inheritance that is, you ready? I was going to try to describe the inheritance I couldn't do any better than Peter, being led by the Spirit. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, completely pure. To an inheritance that is unfading, and kept in heaven for you who are by God's power being guarded. Now in Romans, Paul tells us a little bit more about this inheritance too, right? You got Peter's description, very powerful. In Romans, he he tells us two things. He explains that God is the source of our inheritance. Heirs of God comes from him. And it comes through our union with Jesus. We're co-heirs with Jesus. That is, we're united with Christ. Those who are united with Christ are the ones who share in the inheritance that he has. That he has gained for them. That leads to one final description of our sonship. Uh, Just in case you're one of those people who obsess over notes, let me review. Number one, the reality of our sonship. Number two, the confidence of our sonship. Number three, the verification of our sonship. Number four, the fruit of our sonship. And finally, number five, the condition of our sonship. And of verse 17, the condition of our sonship. The ESV says it this way, ready? Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. I think as a means of encouraging the Roman believers to persevere in their commitment to Christ, Paul describes their need to suffer with Jesus if they expect to be glorified with him. Now, if you're an alert reader, you'll, you'll start noticing that there's a lot of with language here at the very end of the passage. We are co-heirs with Jesus. We will suffer. We must suffer with Jesus, and we will be glorified with Jesus. Paul's speaking of our union with him. But the condition that he gives at the end of the passage is that we must, something we must fulfill as true sons of God is that we must bear suffering in this life like Jesus did. So I talked to you, uh, when I started this sermon, I said, there can be like these immeasurable mountaintop blessings. Like, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And we are the sons of God, heirs of God. But I also said there are going to be these requirements or responses built in for us as believers. One is, we need to put to death the deeds of the body. But here, it's 
provided that we suffer with him. And what an amazing paradox, right? The powerful Holy Spirit of God is given to us. This is the same spirit that created the world out of nothing. This is the spirit that was powerful to raise Jesus from the dead. But in a paradox of God, what it means for us is that he will enable us through the sufferings that we experience in this life, joining and following in the footsteps of Jesus. Indeed, as Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. It's my prayer for us this week that through the Spirit, by the Spirit, we would get serious. That we would kill the enemy, our sinful flesh. And that we would count our present sufferings joy in light of future glory. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, this week, potentially as a way to respond to this sermon, to spend some time in the evenings or the mornings. If you're a morning person, do it then. Evening person, do it then. Spend some time with the Lord. And ask Him, God, what sins of my body have I been casual about? Ask Him to identify those. I'm planning on doing that this week. You can ask me. You can ask me. I'm planning on doing this this week. What sins have I just been playing around with? And then ask him for grace. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. You don't need a gimmick. You don't need a technique. You have the third person of the Trinity inside of you. He can enable you. He might use the word of God. He might use spiritual brothers and sisters to help you. If you're humble and you acknowledge your sin, say, you tell me to put it to death and I I just haven't, haven't been doing that. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to say thank you for this new obligation to put to death the deeds of the body, but I, I want to say thank you more for the new empowerment by the Spirit. Thank you for implanting your Spirit in us. Give us strength in the battle against sin. Lord, my heart is broken for any person here who does not know Jesus. Even if they try and struggle in whatever sincerity they can muster to not do the things their flesh wants, they will fail. They will die. They will suffer eternal destruction in the fires of hell unless they would believe in Jesus. Unless you, Spirit, would open their eyes, open their hearts so that they would believe unless you would make them alive. If there is anyone here today who does not know Jesus as your Savior, it's as easy as 
believing that he came to this life, that he he came to this world, that he died on the cross in your place for your sins and that God raised him from the dead so that he could offer you salvation if you believe in him today. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to consider Romans 8. There are amazing mountaintop experiences. None of us deserve to be adopted as sons. None of us deserve to be heirs of an inheritance that you give. Heirs with our brother, Jesus. We do not deserve that. Thank you for the blessings, Lord. And enable us as believers, to respond appropriately. Help us not surrender to the flesh this week. And help us to join in suffering those who follow Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.